0: Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you open our ears now as we have heard your word to understand it, to believe it and like the church in philadelphia to love your word to hold fast to your name jesus to hold fast to each other as pillars in the church and we pray this in your powerful name jesus the holy and true one amen please be seated uh can we check my mic make sure it's on please if not give me a signal and i'll use the other mic thank you so we're continuing the series in the letters to the revelation uh the, the churches in asia in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to grab a mic, I guess. Um, if you look up on the screen, the next slide there shows the map that we've been using, Dante. Uh, seven churches in a geographic area that make a circle around Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. We've looked at uh, each of these through number six, which is today's Philadelphia. And I think we're on now. We're on now? Are we on now? Nope. Yes? No? OK. We'll use this one. Cool. Philadelphia, the sixth church in the seven letters. Why the number seven? Well, isn't it obvious if you read the book of Revelation, that's the number of perfection, universality. It means that this is not a letter only to an ancient church in an ancient place called Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, by the way, but it's a church that represents all the churches. The letters were all to be read to all the churches, and the last line of each letter says, let anyone who has an ear to hear, let the Spirit speak to you what he's saying to the churches. Not just the church in Philadelphia, but even to Living Hope today. We've heard of Philadelphia before because we've lived in America, and we've heard of the city of brotherly love, as it's called, and that was named after um, a brother of an ancient king. The king was Eumenes II. He named this ancient city, Philadelphia, after his brother, whose name was Achilles II, because he loved his brother so dearly. The name means the one who loves his brother. Philadelphia, the one who loves his brother. And for almost 2,000 years, this church in ancient Turkey has had a Christian witness. Uh, Despite the fact that the majority of the country is now Muslim, for 2,000 years there's been a Christian witness in this land. Now the church is primarily Orthodox or Roman Catholic, but there it stands, a monument to the faith. Today we're talking about monumental faith. What does the word monument mean? If you are. 15 or under, I want you to raise your hand if you understand what the word monument means or monumental, and take your best guess to define what it means to be monumental. Raise your hand. I'll call on you. you get bonus points. You might get some candy at the end of the service. Yes. Olivia. Speak loudly. Monumental. What does it mean? All right. We're going to raise the bar a little bit if you're under the age of 20. Go ahead. What does it mean? Shout it out. Under 22. Come on. We're getting warmer, right? What's monumental mean, Serena? Yeah. It means how are related to a monument. Like a large sculpture dedicated to something, usually an important person or event. You got it. An important person or event is captured in a statue or something to remember them by. It means something of utter importance. Something that's so important you've got to remember it for a long time. It's something that has enduring value. Something that is uh, strong and stable. Something that is outstanding or astounding in its importance. And the church in Philadelphia had a monumental faith. They were even told that they were to be uh, pillars in God's temple. They were to be an actual monument remembering the strength of God working through them for many, many years, even until the present day. Monumental faith. Philadelphia was a church like living hope. We're reminded on a day like Memorial Day, when a lot of people are gone, and we're already a small enough church that the church in Philadelphia also had little strength, little size. He speaks to the church, and he says in chapter 3, verse 8, I know that you have little power, but you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I think it's so fitting for us to hear this word today, brothers and sisters, that we, though we may have little power and little worldly influence, though in the the world's wisdom we might be considered fools, that we have kept Christ's name. We have stay faithful and held in his word, the gospel. You might be unemployed. You might feel like you have no significance because you're not working right now. Maybe you're single and you feel like, I want a relationship. Maybe you have a big degree from a great university and a very small job that doesn't seem like it fits, the degree that you worked so hard for. Maybe, like Rudy, you're about to undergo some medical testing in the next weeks and years of your life, dialysis or something else, but you're faithful, God says this little weak church, Philadelphia. He says, I love you, and I'm going to make you strong. I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to give you a monumental influence in the world. Kind of like what Paul heard from Jesus' list in Second Corinthians chapter 12 when he said, I had a weakness, I had a thorn in the flesh, but Jesus told me, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Hold on, hold fast, you will have monumental influence. So so many of us probably feel at any given day like our faith is, is weak, like a, like a reed, the Bible would say, blowing in the wind, a reed that is easily broken, you know, just a, a twig, just a small, fragile thing, and, and yet the Bible calls us to have faith that would be like an oak, planted, an oak tree, rooted, an oak of righteousness, the Bible calls us, even though we might feel like we're not worthy of that title. And here, God says, if you feel weak and small, if you feel like just... Um, an accessory in the body of Christ, like an earring or you know a belt, that can be easily discarded. You don't really need that to make the outfit complete. He says, I want you to know that you are a part of the body. You are a member that counts. Look around the room here. We need a paint job over here on this side, especially because of the kids' program. You know, we get a lot of colors and markers and you know a lot of decorations on the walls. We need to paint that wall, but the paint is really non-essential. To the function of the building, right? It's not structural. It's not a pillar like we have here. These pillars. People ask, me like, why don't we just take these columns right off the sanctuary? Well, that's fine. If you have $10,000 you want to donate, that's how much it would cost to put a steel beam in to replace the pillars. So that's fine. But those are structural. Those are important. And God says, I want you, brother and sister, to be more than just painting the wall. I want you to be a pillar in the church. You are important. You are enduring. You are strong. As we look at this letter to the, to the church in Philadelphia, we're going to see seven things. I just chose seven because not I want to have a really long sermon today, but because I want to be biblical. It's seven, a good number in the book of Revelation, obviously. So we'll go quickly through each one. And the first is this. Some of us, when we look at the world, when we look at the word, when we look at a passage like this, a letter of encouragement to the church in Philadelphia, because this is a letter of encouragement. It's a letter unlike any other letter in the seven letters. Uh, only two churches get no criticism, no critique from Jesus. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna was a suffering church; they were persecuted, so he kind of has sympathy on them and says, "They're there, you'll be okay." But to Philadelphia alone, he gives like unadulterated, unfettered praise. It's just praise, period. End of the letter. You are doing so well. He says, "You're gonna, you're gonna shine. You're gonna rock this. You're gonna be a pillar. I'm gonna name you. You're gonna, you're gonna overcome your enemies." These are great accolades that he gives to this church. A monumental. Um, church with monumental faith getting monumental praise. But some of us hear this type of letter and it doesn't seem to resonate with us. Because some of us see the glass half empty in life rather than the glass half full. Or in keeping with the metaphor of Jesus here in this this letter, we see the door half open or half shut. Now I need a volunteer to come over to this door here. One of the kids, um, let's see, Olivia, yes, okay. So eager. Come on to this door, please and open it up for us halfway and just stand there for me, okay? Just open it halfway. Jesus says to the church in chapter 3, verse 7 of this letter, I have opened and no one will shut. And why shut? No one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, how open is the door right now that Jesus is open? Is it halfway open? Halfway? Some of you see it as halfway. The door that Jesus has opened is not halfway open. The door that Olivia has opened is halfway open. The door that any human can open for you is only halfway open. Maybe it's halfway closed, depending on how you see it. But Jesus says, I've opened something fully that no one can shut. Come on back, Olivia. Thank you. You can shut that door all the way. I've opened the door all the way. Maybe you see life as primarily difficult. I've put in the hard work. I've put in long hours. And all I've got in return it's hard times, hard knocks. I put out a lot of effort for only a little progress. I feel like I've locked myself out of many doors in life. I feel like I've locked myself out of many opportunities that could have been mine. I feel like I've lost my keys so many times in life that I just can't get through where I really want to go. I feel like I keep knocking on doors in life that just won't open. Is that how you see the world, closed doors? half-open doors, doors that you can't get open any further than they already are, Jesus has a word to the church, and he says, I've opened the door, period. No one can shut it, period. He says, this is the word to the church in Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One. What does that mean? Jesus is the chosen one. He's set apart for the job. He is the man for the job, to open the door. Then he says, I'm the faithful or true one. What does that mean? means you can count on him. You can depend on him. He's trustworthy. When he says, I'll open the door, believe it. It's not half open. It's all the way open. Jesus is the one who has the key of David. Now, I don't want you to think about the key of David as being a small key like the ones that we carry on our rings, like these. Jesus uh, has the keys to the kingdom, he says. The key of David, of course, is a reference to King David of Israel the great king of which all the other kings should be compared to, and the, the ancestor of Jesus himself, who Jesus being the son of David sitting on the throne eternally fulfilled all that David embodied for Israel. And so when it says, do you have the key of David, it means you have the keys of the kingdom of God. You sit on the throne, you can open and close the doors to the heavenly kingdom, to the temple of God itself. There's an ancient prophecy, point number two, that the door that opens only has one key, And there's only one who can open the door. That is Jesus, of course. I want you to hear this prophecy from Isaiah 22. This is the only other reference in the Old Testament to this key of David. So we know this is where John is getting his reference from uh, this letter in Revelation. Eliakim was a manager in the Old Testament of the the king's household, Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Eliakim had keys. He had authority. He took care of the house as a steward. And there's a prophecy in Isaiah 22 that says, Authority is in Eliakim's hand. He shall be a father to God's people, and I will place on his shoulder a key of David, the key of the house of David. He shall open, and no one shall shut. He shall shut, and no one shall open. This is what we know about Jesus. It's a reference to Eliakim. But what does that mean that he took the keys, and they would be on his shoulders? How does that work? Is that a very practical place to put put your keys? It's not in your pocket. It's not in your hands. It's not in the door. It's on your shoulder. Why would he say this? Well, that's because in ancient times, the keys look more like this. So, this is a key that I'm holding, which isn't an ordinary key. It's almost as tall as I am. And, does anybody else's key open? Tom. Gas lines water lines. Exactly. Gas lines and water lines. See that guy? You get an education. Hang around Tom Long enough. And this is a special key you can't just find any store. Uh, it took me a while to find this key. This is what you, we used to shut off the water in front of the church, in the sidewalk. And so, this is the type of key you carry where? Not in your pocket, but on your shoulder. You see how it works? This is the size of the type of key that the key of David would have been, because the key is referenced there is the key that would open the temple doors, the temple gate, or the gates of the city. There was a large, shaft-like wooden or metal key that would be so big, you have to put it on your shoulder to rest it. And that's what you would slide into the, the lock opening to turn this massive door to open it up. And it says that Jesus is the one who holds the key of David on his shoulder the place of responsibility. On his shoulders, he's bearing the burden. He is claiming authority, and he's telling you that he will open the door with this key and no one can shut He is the king, and he has the keys to the kingdom. The keys represent authority. It represents power. It represents security. It represents honor. It represents rule and responsibility. It represents the ability even to father the people of God. That's what it said of Eliasian, and that's true of Jesus as well. The door has one key, and only one who can open the key. And what's his name? Not Eliakim. Jesus, right? It's not a trick question. Jesus. Point number three. This letter teaches us that the open door was once closed to all. The open door was once closed to all. Michaela, can you go please and open that door over there for us? Jesus says, "I've opened a door that no one can shut, but why I've shut, no one can open." Now, what should Realize that as we open this door, this is a door that opens very easily. This door has no lock on it because if there was a fire in the building, we want to be able to get out easily. The fire marshal came and said, This door needs one of those panic push bars where you can just fall against it or push it and it opens. And he says, You're gonna to have to change this handle. I said, Not necessary. Why? Because the latch doesn't work. Okay, the latch doesn't work. So it's just a push door. This door is very easy to open and close. Come on back in, McKinley, close the door. This door cannot be locked. This door easily opened. But Jesus says there was a time when the door that is open now could never be opened to anyone. It was permanently shut. Ezekiel 44 verses 1 through 3, the prophet Ezekiel sees the vision of the temple of God, the new temple, after the temple was destroyed. He sees a new temple, a heavenly vision, and he says there is an eastern gate leading to the sanctuary of the temple of God, and that gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened and no one shall enter by it. Why? For Yahweh, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. There are some doors, when you go inside certain places, you want to lock the door, and you don't want anyone else coming in. Can you give me an example of that? Bathroom. Yeah, the bathroom, exactly. Maybe, when you have children, you want to lock yourself in your office and really get some work done, and you say, sorry guys, you can't come in. When God goes into his temple, no one else can enter in through that gate, or through that door, because now the holy presence of God is dwelling there and no sinner can just barge in and enter that holy space. Ezekiel chapter 44 goes on to say, Only the prince may enter to sit in the temple and to eat bread before Yahweh. He shall enter it. Once the Lord has passed through, Ezekiel tells us in verse 4, the glory of Yahweh has the temple and I fell on my face. I didn't follow him behind Jesus, the Prince, or Yahweh, the God of the universe. I fell on my face where I belong, outside, shut door, didn't go in. He fell on his face in awe, in fear of unworthiness. Only one is worthy to enter the temple of the living God. Only one is able to go into that gate, to go through that door. The Prince, the Messiah, Jesus himself. So Some of us can really relate to this Ezekiel 44 idea. You feel like most of your life, the words have been closing in your face. You might even feel like God has kept you far away from Him, or He hasn't allowed you to do certain opportunities, and that He might be keeping you far from Him. Maybe you feel like, I've tried so many keys and so many doors, and I just keep getting excluded. Tell me about it, as you feel. Tell me about it, being excluded from all sorts of opportunities and doors. Trials and bitterness, broken promises, broken dreams. Maybe this is why you think of the world as the door is half closed and not half open or all the way open. Maybe it's because you don't have that job, or you don't have a steady income, or you don't have that spouse, or you haven't gotten to that school that you want to get into, or you didn't get that promotion, or you feel like you're always waiting in a very long line, and you feel like you're last in line so much of the time. So many doors in the world, and to you, so many of them seem closed. But Ezekiel is not the last word for the believer. Revelation 3 is the last word for the believer. Revelation 3, verses... 7 and 8 tell us that Jesus opens doors and no one can close them. And he says, I have opened a door that no one can shut in the life of my people. He says, in a world full of private clubs, in a world full of exclusive networks that you just can't break into, in a world full of closed doors, unique venues, he says, there's good news. I have opened a door wide for you. I have opened a door wide for you. This is the good news of the gospel number four the fourth point in our letter the door is now open to all who are entering in through jesus the door is now wide open to anyone who would enter in through jesus amen Amen. like ezekiel 44 we're told the prince has gone into the temple and he has sat down and he is eating with the king god himself he is in the glorious place he is the only one that can access the temple But guess what Revelation chapter 3 tells us in verse 20. We'll read this next week. There's another door mentioned. One that Jesus is knocking on. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and do what? Eat with him and he with me. He says, You can come in through the door now. You can sit in the holy place of God and have a meal with Jesus. You can eat and drink with God, fellowship, friendship, family, closeness, intimacy. This is the new way opened up that Hebrews talks about in chapter 10. The way opened up through Jesus that we can enter in. Don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. Don't stop working. Don't stop believing. Don't stop believing and obeying the scriptures. Don't stop asking God for what you need. Don't stop knocking on the door because Jesus says, I will open it eventually. I'll open the door if you need to open. Don't stop seeking because he says, you will find the gospel treasure and the opportunities that I will give you. The door will be open. Even if all other doors have been closed, there's one door that's most important. And I have opened that for you. And I will invite you in. What if you're the type of person that all things in life have worked out so well for you? Things just seem to be going very swimmingly. You're always rocking. You are always just on target. The doors of the world have been wide open for you. You've been walking through with privilege and with power, and you have responsibilities, and people respect you. What if that's your, your uh, lot in life? What if you've been very blessed with all that? Well, let me just remind you that if all the doors of the world that open to you, that's great, but if this one door, the one that matters the most, the door of the kingdom of God, is, is still closed in your life, then you really don't have anything. You've lost everything of importance. This is the monumental door. This is the monumental entrance. This is the... Eternal life itself. And God says, I want you to know that if you have one door open, my door is not open, you've got enough. If you have everything else and don't have this, you have nothing. This is the door that anyone can enter through Jesus. We talk about repentance and faith in the church. right? We use the words repentance and faith. We we say repent of your sins and believe in Christ and faith and you'll have salvation through him. You'll have a relationship with him. Repentance is simply looking at all the other doors out in the world. Doors of temptation, doors of power, doors of success and saying, If I go through all those doors but don't enter through the door that Jesus has opened, I've lost everything. So repentance is saying, you know what, I'm not going to just enter those other doors. Faith is saying, I will enter the door that Christ has opened. The only one that matters. The monumentally important door of the kingdom of God. The open door, number five. The open door has a very steep price of admission. The open door has a very costly admission price. To see how valuable this door is that Jesus has opened, we have to see what is the cost to entry. John chapter 10 verse 9 tells us, Jesus says, I am the door. He also calls himself the gate in this chapter. He says, I am a shepherd and I have sheep and I have opened the gate and they will follow me. I am the door. Anyone who enters must enter through me, he says, and they will be saved. But what is the price of admission? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And then as a lamb of God himself, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep, and I take it up again in resurrection. The price of admission, the price of entering through Jesus who is the door, who is the shepherd, is that he must lay down his own life for his sheep. What an astounding, monumental cost that this promise has been purchased with for our sake. That entry is purchased by the very perfect life of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he lays down his life for us, and it says, will you come in? I bought this at such a great cost. Will you come in? Will you enter in? Would someone, one of my young friends, anyone, go over back to our door over here, please. Someone new. Okay, you're young enough, Amari. I mean, who are we kidding? You're not that young, but you're young enough. Okay, she's still young. Open the door for us, please. How much did that cost you, Amari? Okay. Close the door. How much did that cost you? Yeah. So nothing. There's some places that cost money to get into the doors, right? Some of the clubs downtown, some of the exclusive uh, places at university. You can want to sit back down. But these doors, the doors of the church are open. They're free. And Jesus says, there's a reason that it's free to come into a church. Because I've already paid the price. We don't have dues. We don't have membership fees. We do have tithes and offerings, which means we're giving back to God when he's given us and saying, use us for your work, but you don't have to pay to come here. It's free. You don't have to pay for lunch here. I mean, I think we've charged for lunch like maybe once in our entire existence of Living Hope Church, but it's free. It's all been paid for by the blood of Christ, by the grace of God. And so he says, think about how monumental the cost is to enter into my kingdom, entry into the White House. Not so. You know, you have to get a ticket. It's, it's exclusionary. You you may not get in any time you want. Uh, entry into like top secret military facilities where they're doing research, you can't just walk in. Bio labs where there's hazards and people are quarantined, you can't just walk in and out of many places in life without the proper credentials, without the proper uh, dues that you pay, without the proper people that you know. But heaven is different. This is not a gated community. This is not the White House. This is. Where God has said, I've paid the price for you. All may enter in who have faith in Christ. It's the holy, holy, holy place. The temple, where none could enter, but now all can because Jesus has paid the price. Let me ask you again. Have you entered the door that Jesus has opened for you? Cost you nothing. What are you waiting for? It cost you nothing. It's time to stop dwelling on our failures to stop dwelling on all the closed doors in our lives, to stop saying, you know, I just don't trust God because he didn't give me this or that opportunity that I wanted so desperately. Jesus says here in this text, verse 11, hold fast to what you do have. Let go of all the things that you don't have. What good is that doing you to hold on to the grudges and the bitterness of the things you don't have? He says in verse 11, hold on to what you do have. See the door not half open, all the way open, and enter in. See, the Spirit is speaking to us right now, is he not? The Spirit of God. Verse 14 says, If you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church. Some of us don't have eyes or ears to see. All we see is closed doors in life. But I'm praying that God would open your eyes and open your ears to hear. The door is open, and that you may enter in. It's the only door that really matters. The sixth thing we see from this letter is that we, as we enter in, This is a place of vindication. It's a place of victory for hurting people. It's a place of vindication for people who've been victims, who've been oppressed. And it's a place of victory for people who've been defeated. When we come into a church like ours, we can stop feeling sorry for ourselves and we can start enjoying the gifts that God has given us. Do you value worship I mean, it's just like an object lesson. that When we come to the church, we should all be in the sanctuary together, right, as a people of God. We're trying to really make sure that people don't come in and just hang out out there on the streets or in the gathering room by themselves. We are welcome here, and we belong here. And this has been purchased at a great price for us to come and worship together and have fellowship together. We value loving one another, like the church in Philadelphia did, the city of brotherly love, sisterly love. As we think about our fellowship and our meeting together and our eating together and our loving one another, we turn to a, a difficult part of the letter, which is the line that says, this little difficult bit that says, there were not all loving people in the city of Philadelphia. Look with me in verse 9. Behold, he says, there are some of those who will call in the synagogue of Satan. They're like in Satan's country club. They're, they're in the synagogue of Satan. And what is the synagogue of just the, uh, the Jewish church? So there were some some Jews in that area who, they say that they're Jews, but they're not. They're not true Jews. They're not acting like Jews really act. They're haters, and they are liars, he says. And they're telling you, Christians um, of all different nationalities in Philadelphia, that you don't belong here in the synagogue with them. They've kicked you out of the club. They've excluded you. They've closed the door and shut it in your face. They say, you're not good enough. You're not God's people. We are. He says they've gotten it all along. That exclusionary mindset that says you're not welcome to the table is a lie. Because Jesus says I've opened the door to who? All people. Not just Jews who have all their credentials in order and you know the right signs in their body and circumcision and they, they know the law well. He says I've opened the gospel door to everyone. And if someone says you're not welcome, that's not of God. He says but what I'm going to do is I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you, that you are welcomed by me, and that I've opened the door for you. This is a strange text. You might think, what is this talking about? Jewish people coming and bowing down to the feet of Christian people? What is this about? This is strange. What do we do with this? Well, let let me try to help you. The very ones who kicked you out of their synagogue, Christians, I'm going to now bring them into my temple, and they're going to bow down And worship and learn about my love. Do you hear that? They're not worshiping you. I mean, what happens when someone tries to worship a human in the book of Revelation? Or even an angel. John tried to worship the angel because he looked so powerful and glorious and the angel said, no, 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 don't worship me. Only worship Jesus. And this is not saying that Jewish people should worship Christians in the ancient Philadelphia. This is saying they're going to bow down they're going to come, and you're going to be standing in worship, and join the grace of God, and they're going to come bow down and kneel down on their faces before the king as well, and they're going to learn about my love from you. They're not going to learn about hatred or oppression from you. That, that's, they were doing the oppression. They were doing the excluding. They're going to learn about inclusivity and grace and welcome when they come to your church, when they come and hear the gospel of good news that the door is open to anyone who believes. The Jews would learn that those that they hated are really loved by God, and that they can be loved by God too. This is a monumental scene in the letter. Can you imagine? This is the prophecy of Isaiah 60, verse 14, coming true, but in a very subversive way. Because Isaiah 60, 14 says, The sons who afflicted you, Israel, shall come bending low to you and bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of Yahweh the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. See, the nations Israel will come and bow down at your feet and worship the true God. But now in this strange twist of events, the nations are in the church and the Jews are coming and bowing down and saying, wait, you have the Messiah, he loved you, we want a part of that as well. The prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Enemies becoming friends at the foot of the cross, sharing the same table in the same temple of the same God. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, Paul talks about his evangelistic efforts among the Gentiles. Paul was a Jew. Remember that. You've got to keep it straight. It's kind of going back and forth between Jews and Gentiles. Now, Paul was a Jew, and he was sent out to the Gentiles to preach the message of welcome, grace, forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of Christ. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9 a wide door. Um, Susanna, can you go open the door for us, please, over here? Run quickly. Run quickly. Okay, Ellie, could you go up the door, first, please? A wide door of effective work is open for us. A wide door. Open it wide as wide as you can. A wide door of effective work has opened the door. Doesn't that sound promising? Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound like something every one of you wants to have in your life is a wide door of open opportunity? Your friends and your family, they will want to hear the gospel from your lips. They'll want to see your life lived for Christ and they'll say, where can I get some of that? I'm going to bow down before this God and learn his love from you. The door is wide open. That sounds great until you read the very next phrase of 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9. A wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries close the door quick Ellie, close it quick there are many adversaries, there are many enemies out there they're going to come get us, we've got to hide we've got to be the church and like, hide inside the church and lock the doors from the bad people out there all the people who don't believe in Jesus like us we've got to hide from them because they're our enemies right you've got to stay safe, you've got to stay with the Christians only and huddle up together and make sure that you don't get influenced by the world right, that's not what Paul said he said there's a wide door of opportunity for effective work to be done, and there are many adversaries. So let's go out there and meet them. Let's go out there and take advantage of this open door. Like, we can be around as many enemies as we could possibly want. we got so many enemies in the awesome. like, We don't have enough time to show them the love of Jesus and proclaim the effective ministry of the gospel through the Holy Spirit to each one of them. If you think I'm just making this up, what about Colossians 4, verse 2, another open door text? Pray for us, Paul says, that God may open to us a door for the Word. Yes, please, Lord, open up the door for the Word go God and do His job to change hearts and lives, loving and sharing the gospel with all these people. Declaring the mystery of Christ, he says, sounds great, Take us get to that next phrase, on account for which I am in prison. See, see, I'm writing from a prison. I preached the gospel out there in the world through so that open door, and now they lock me up in prison. So, what I'm going to pray is that I keep having an open door, even on behind the steel locked prison door, and I'm chained. I'm going to pray that I'll have more opportunities right here for the gospel door to continue to be open, and that even my enemies who locked me up would hear, and other fellow prisoners would hear the message that the door is actually wide open for anyone who would believe. And so Jesus says to people like Paul and people like us and people like the Philadelphian brothers and sisters, he says, you know what? I know you have little power and you're weak and some of you are in prison. Some of you have been excluded from the synagogues and the country clubs and the, the boy clubs and all the, you know, the people that are elite and that are movers and shakers. I know you've been excluded but I have a door open for you. And one day they will come to, many of them will come to and worship alongside of you and, and see that my love is monumental. That everything else is a a pittance that the world offers. And all the suffering you've experienced, all the mocking and all the insults and all the the awkward moments that you've had, it's all going to be vindicated. It'll all be redeemed. When you see the enemies of the cross bowing down next to you and worshiping Jesus, won't you say, you know what? It was all worth it. All the problems I went through, all the headaches, all the sleepless nights, all those conversations where I was scoffed or rejected or they made fun of me, it's, it's going to be vindicated in the end. Jesus will have his way. He will lead many to himself, and you and I will worship him for it. And the final thing we see from the text is that this open door provides security in a very permanent place. The open door that Jesus opens provides security in a very permanent place. We're talking about once you get in, you have entry or entrance, you're secure. You're safe. And once you're there, you have a secure identity. Who you are is safe. Jesus says in verse 12, the one who conquers the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Once again, look at the columns here in our church sanctuary. You know, underneath this drywall is steel columns. And we drywall them for fire protection. So that if there was a severe fire, they wouldn't melt and the building would collapse. So, columns are structurally important. They are incredibly important for the structure of the building. Many earthquakes have hit Philadelphia over the years before the play was written. There happened to be one actually in AD 17. Just a, you know, a few decades before this letter was written, the, the city had been completely destroyed. The city sat next to a, an earthquake fault line. You know, geographically, a place where it was dangerous to have a city, and so the city was destroyed in this earthquake. And then it was completely rebuilt by the time this letter was written, and it, the the city was prospering once again. But these people would have a good idea of how important uh, structural foundation is, and and they would know that when God says you are a pillar. He's not saying you're a twig. He's not saying you're just on a wall. He's saying you're something incredibly strong and important to my house, to my plan. In 1 Kings chapter 7, there are two famous pillars. In the temple of Solomon, in the Jerusalem temple, there were two pillars. And they weren't structural. They didn't sit like this under beams holding up the roof. They actually sat in the front of the vestibule. And they were really for decoration. They were monuments, you could say. Now, what is a monument? It's, it's like something that's named to remember something important. Well, those pillars were reminding the people of Israel of God's importance and God's strength. And the, the pillars were actually given names. Yachin and Boaz. Boaz means in him is my strength. You know, strong pillars. Yachim means it is established and it's firm, it's done. These two pillars reminded people of God's strength. They were named, they were monuments. There were also monuments in the New Testament, pillars, who also had names. Their names were Peter, James, and John. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, Peter, James, and John seemed to be pillars in the church in Jerusalem when I visited it. They seem to be the, the big the big dogs, the, the, the real movers and shakers, the foundational guys, the real structure behind the operation, the strength of the gospel message. They are bearing great responsibility and great weight. These are the pillars, these men, these apostles. Like temple pillars, despite suffering, despite suspicion, they knew who they were, and I could tell who they were. They had full power in their way of the world. They've been locked up. They've been abused. They've been beaten, but they had true strength. All the other doors have been shut to them, but they had one door that was open, and they walked through, and they did God's work. They left a legacy. They had security in Christ. And God says, I'll do the same for you. I'll make you a pillar. I'll give you a name. And he says in in the final verses, I'll put my name on you. You're going to go into the temple of God. You're going to be a pillar. I'm going to set you there. You'll never go out of it. Once you're there, you're established. And I will then write on you the name of my God, and I'll write on you the name of the new city, the new Jerusalem, and I'll write on you my own new name. Now, imagine the name of God himself, Yahweh, being written on you like, you know, a tattoo. Get, get, eat up for Jesus. He, he's writing the name of his own father on your life. It's like if you're a pillar, he's, he's frightening you with graffiti. This one belongs to Yahweh. He belongs here. She belongs in this place. She's never going to leave. She'll never be excluded. What does Yahweh mean? The I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And you are mine. I am, and you are mine. Your pillar. Monumentally loved. I've I've drawn my love across your life. I've written it large for the world to see. Monumentally. redeemed. Identify with me. And what about the New Jerusalem? It's not the old Jerusalem. This is not saying, hey, you're gonna you're gonna go to the old city over there where the temple has been destroyed, and you're going to stand against that western wall that remain, and you'll have a, a certain place where people respect you and you'll be in the old city, the old religion, the old way of doing things, the city based, built with human hands, the temple made with human skill and ingenuity. He doesn't say that. He says those are the old doors. The old words. I'm going to put the name of the New Jerusalem on you. It's not about your cultural identity, it's not whether you're Jew or Gentile, it's not whether you're black or white, it's not whether you're rich or poor, Democrat or Republican, none of these things really matter, where you went to school, what neighborhood you grew up in, who you know, this is the old way. He says, I'm writing on you the new name of the new city, which comes from heaven down on earth, the new Jerusalem. This is where you belong. This is your home. This is your identity. This is where you get your security and your permanence, You're a pillar, in the temple, in the new Jerusalem. And then finally, he says, I'm going to even write my own new name on you. Huh. My own new name on you. What is that? I have no idea. I have no idea what the new name of Jesus is. But I have a couple guesses, and I'm just going to, like, hypothesize for a second. Well, holy hypothesis here, just to kind of stir our imagination, okay? I'm not trying to be blasphemous or, like, you know no, no more than I'm supposed to know. But what names of Jesus do you know? There's so many, you know? Uh Emmanuel. God is us. You're the Lamb of God. The, the holy and true one, according to his own words here in this letter. You know, he is the faithful one. But, but what do we not really know about Jesus yet? Well, we know so many things about him. He came, God, into the body of a man and died on a cross for our sins and rose from the dead. We know he's the, the crucified one, the risen one. We know that he's ascended to heaven and sitting on the throne. He's the enthroned one. We know he's the great priest sitting at the right hand of God pleading for us and praying for us. But what do we not really know about Jesus yet? It's really about his return. It's about when he comes back to earth, the new Jerusalem comes back down, and he, he shows us face to face how great it really is. We only have a, a tiny taste. The door is open, but we haven't really been in face to face to see Jesus yet. But one day, things are going to get so amazing so monumental, you're going to go into the temple of God and actually see Jesus with your own eyes. And he says, I'm going to write my own new name on you. I don't even know the name of neither of you, but we're going to know it one day. Revelation 2 verse 17 says, Jesus will also give us a, a stone, a new white stone with a new name that's our new name. And no one else will know that name but him and me. And you'll have your own new name and no one will know it but Jesus and you. We're talking about levels of familiarity and family intimacy that you've never even dreamed of. We're talking about a God that lets you so close to him He says no one else will even know the types of jokes we share, and these holy jokes we're going to have, and that holy nickname I'm going to give you, and things that you thought would never be redeemable, the door that slammed in your face, and you said, how could that ever happen? And I'm going to tell you the end of the story. I'm going to tell you the punchline. I'm going to show you how sweet my plan and my movement has been all the way along. Church of Philadelphia, he says, you're small, you're weak, the doors are closed in your face, but hold fast to what you do have, because what you're going to have is so much greater than you can imagine. Living hope for us, drawn near to Christ, he's opened the door. Hebrews chapter 10 says we have a new and living way opened up for us, through the body of Jesus. Then when the body of Jesus was hung on the cross and he died for our sins, it says the, the temple curtain, the veil that kept us out of God's presence has been ripped open. And now we can enter in. He just holds back the confession that, which you now have. And he says, and don't neglect gathering yourselves together. Stir up each other to love and good deeds. For the day is approaching when I will come back again. I will give you my new name. And you'll have a monumental reward for your faith.